Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 64 A Vagabond Chapter We must pass over a part of Mrs. Rebecca Crawley's biography with that delicacy which the world demands. The moral world that has no particular objection to vice, but hates hearing it named. There are things we know perfectly well in Vanity Fair, though we never speak of them, and a polite public will no more read an authentic description of vice than a truly refined English female will permit the word breeches to be said in her hearing. And yet, madame, both are walking the world before our faces every day. If you were to blush every time they went by, what complexions you would have! It is only when their naughty names are called out that you show any outrage. I have submitted to this fashion all through this story, only hinting at the existence of wickedness in a light, easy, and agreeable manner, so that nobody's fine feelings may be offended." I defy anyone to say that our Becky has not been presented in a perfectly genteel and inoffensive way. In describing this siren, singing and smiling, coaxing and cajoling, I modestly ask, have I once forgotten the laws of politeness and showed the monster's hideous tail above water? No. Those who wish may peep down under the waves and see it writhing and twirling, diabolically hideous and slimy, but above the waterline everything has been decorous. When, however, the sirens disappear and dive below, down among the dead men, the water grows cloudy, and it is pointless to peer into it. They look pretty enough when they sit on a rock, twanging their harps and combing their hair. But when they sink into the sea, depend on it, those mermaids are up to no good, and we had best not examine them feasting on their wretched, pickled victims. And so, when Becky is out of the way, be sure that the less that is said about her doings, the better." If we were to give a full account of her life after the Curzon Street catastrophe, there might be some reason to say this book was improper. The actions of very vain, heartless people are often improper. And what are those of a woman without faith, or love, or character? And I am inclined to think that there was a period in Mrs. Becky's life when she was seized, not by remorse, but by a kind of despair— neglected her person, and did not even care for her reputation. This degradation did not take place all at once. It was brought about by degrees, and after many struggles to keep up, as a man who goes overboard hangs on to a spar whilst any hope is left. 
She lingered about London, whilst her husband was making preparations for his departure to Coventry Island, and it is believed she tried to see her brother-in-law, Sir Pitt Crawley, and to work upon his feelings. Probably Lady Jane interposed. I have heard that she quite astonished her husband by her spirit and her determination to disown Mrs. Becky. She invited Rawdon to stay in Gaunt Street until his departure for Coventry Island, knowing that with him for a guard, Mrs. Becky would not try to come, and she looked at all the letters which arrived for Sir Pitt, lest he and his sister-in-law should be corresponding. So, after one or two attempts, Rebecca consented to Pitt's demand that any correspondence should be carried on by their lawyers. In fact, Pitt's mind had been poisoned against her. Wenham had told him such a biography of Mrs. Becky as had astonished him, who her father was, in what year her mother danced at the opera, her previous history, and her conduct during her married life. Becky was left with a sad, sad reputation in his esteem. The income of the governor of Coventry Island is not large. Some were set aside by Rawdon for the payment of debts, and he could not spare his wife more than three hundred pounds a year, which he proposed to pay to her on condition that she would never trouble him. It was in everyone's interest to get her out of the country and hush up a most disagreeable affair. She was probably so much occupied in arranging this business with her husband's lawyers that she forgot to take any step whatever about her son, little Rawdon, and did not once propose to go and see him. That young gentleman was consigned to the guardianship of his aunt and uncle. He had always been very fond of his Aunt Jane. His mamma wrote him a neat letter from Boulogne, in which she told him to mind his books, and said she was going to take a continental tour and would write to him again. But she never did for a year, and not, indeed, until Sir Pitt's only boy, always sickly, died of whooping cough and measles. Then Rawdon's mamma wrote the most affectionate letter to her darling son, who was made heir of Queen's Crawley by this accident. Rawdon Crawley, then grown a tall, fine lad, blushed when he got the letter. "'Oh, Aunt Jane, you are my mother,' he said, "'and not, not that one.' However, he wrote back a kind and respectful letter to Mrs. Rebecca, then living at a boarding-house in Florence. But we are advancing matters. Our darling Becky's first flight was not very far.' She perched upon the French coast at Boulogne, and there lived in rather a genteel, widowed manner, with a maid and a couple of rooms at a hotel. She entertained her neighbours with stories of her brother, Sir Pitt, and her great London acquaintance, talking that easy, fashionable slip-slop which so impresses certain folks of small breeding. She passed with them for a person of importance. She gave little tea-parties, and shared in the innocent amusements of sea-bathing, jaunts in open carriages, strolls on the sands, and visits to the play. She was always affable, easy, and good-natured, with men especially. From people coming abroad at the end of the London season, Becky learnt the opinion of London society about her conduct—
One day she met Lady Partlet and her daughters as she was walking on Boulogne Pier. Lady Partlet marshaled all her daughters round her with a sweep of her parasol and retreated, darting savage glances at poor little Becky. On another day, the packet ship came in. It had been blowing fresh, and it always amused Becky to see the woe-begone faces of the people emerging from the boat. Lady Slingstone happened to be on board this day. She had been exceedingly ill and could scarcely walk up the plank from the ship to the pier. But all her energies rallied the instant she saw Becky smiling roguishly under a pink bonnet. Giving her a glance of shriveling scorn, she walked into the custom house quite unsupported. Becky laughed, but I don't think she liked it. She felt she was quite alone, and the far-off shining cliffs of England were impassable to her. The behavior of the men had undergone a change, too. Grinstone laughed in her face with a familiarity that was not pleasant. Little Bob Suckling, who three months before would walk a mile in the rain to see her, was talking to a friend one day upon the jetty as Becky took her stroll there. He nodded to her without raising his hat, and continued his conversation. Tom Rakes tried to walk into her sitting-room at the inn with a cigar in his mouth, but she closed the door upon him. She began to feel that she was very lonely indeed. If he'd been here, she said, those cowards would never have dared to insult me. She thought about him with great sadness and perhaps longing, about his honest, stupid, constant kindness and fidelity, his never-ceasing obedience, his good humor, his bravery. Very likely, she cried, and put on a little extra rouge when she came down to dinner. She rouged regularly now, and her maid got cognac for her. Perhaps the insults of the men were not, however, so intolerable as the sympathy of certain women. Mrs. Crackenbury and Mrs. Washington White passed through Bologna in a party on their way to Switzerland. They did not avoid her. They giggled, cackled, condoled, consoled, and patronized her until they drove her almost wild with rage. To be patronized by them, she thought, as they went away, simpering. It was after this visit that Becky, who had paid her weekly bills, who had made herself agreeable to everybody in the house, who smiled at the landlady and called the waiters Monsieur, that Becky, we say, received a notice to quit from the landlord. He had been told by someone that she was an unfit person to have at his hotel, and that other English ladies would not sit down with her. She was forced to fly into lodgings of wearisome dullness and solitude. Still, she held up, and tried to make a character for herself and conquer scandal. She went to church very regularly and sang louder than anybody there. She took up the cause of the widows of shipwrecked fishermen and gave drawings for the Quashibu mission. She did everything that was respectable. She saw people avoiding her and still laboriously smiled upon them. You could never suppose from her face what pangs of humiliation she might be enduring inwardly. People were divided about her, 
Some said that she was the criminal in the matter, while others vowed that she was innocent and that her odious husband was in fault. She won over a good many by bursting into tears about her boy and exhibiting the most frantic grief when his name was mentioned. <sighs> she gained good Mrs. Alderney's heart in that way by weeping when Master Alderney came from school to pass his holidays with his mother. He and her Rawdon were the same age and so alike, Becky said in a voice choking with agony. Whereas there was four years' difference between the boys' ages, and no more likeness between them than between you and me. Wenham, who was on his way to Kissingen to join Lord Steyne, enlightened Mrs. Alderney, and told her how young Rawdon's mamma notoriously hated him and never saw him, how he was thirteen and dark, while little Alderney was only nine and fair, and in a word, caused the lady to repent of her good humour. Whenever Becky made a little circle for herself with incredible toils, somebody came and swept it down rudely, and she had all her work to begin over again. It was very hard, lonely, and disheartening. There was Mrs. Newbright, who took her up for some time, attracted by the sweetness of her singing at church and by her proper views upon serious subjects. Becky took tracts, and even read them. She worked flannel petticoats for the Quashiboos, nightcaps for the Coconut Indians, painted hand-screens for the conversion of the Pope and the Jews, attended two Sunday services at church, and all in vain. Mrs. Newbright happened to write to the Countess of Southdown about a fund for the Fiji Islanders, and mentioned her sweet friend, Mrs. Rawdon Crawley. The Countess wrote back a letter so full of hints, facts, falsehoods, and condemnations that Mrs. Newbright's friendship with Becky ceased forthwith. From one colony to another, Becky fled uneasily. From Bologna to Dieppe, from Dieppe to Cayenne, from Cayenne to Tours, trying with all her might to be respectable. And alas, always found out and pecked out of the cage. Mrs. Hook Eagles took her up at one of these places, a woman without a blemish in her character, and a house in Portman Square. She was staying at a hotel at Dieppe, where Becky fled, and they made each other's acquaintance first when they were swimming together, and then at the hotel table. Mrs. Eagles had heard some of the scandal of the Stain affair, but after a conversation with Becky, she announced that Mrs. Crawley was an angel— her husband a ruffian, Lord Steyne an unprincipled wretch, as everybody knew, and the whole case against Mrs. Crawley a wicked conspiracy of that rascal Wynnum. Mrs. Eagles then patronized Mrs. Rawdon, took her to live with her at her own house at Paris, and did all she could to keep Becky in the paths of virtue and good repute. Becky was very respectable and orderly at first, but the life of humdrum virtue grew utterly tedious to her before long. It was the same routine every day, the same drive over the same stupid voie de Boulogne, the same company of an evening, the same sermon of a Sunday night. Becky was dying of weariness when young Mr. Eagles came from Cambridge, and his mother Seeing the impression which her little friend made upon him, straightway gave Becky warning. Then she tried keeping house with a female friend, 
until they began to quarrel and get into debt. Then she lived for some time at that famous boarding house kept by Madame de Saint-Amour in the Rue Royale at Paris, where she began using her fascinations upon the shabby dandies and fly-blown beauties who frequented her landlady's salons. Becky loves society, and indeed could no more exist without it than an opium-eater without his dram, and she was happy enough at this time of her life. The women here are as amusing as those in Mayfair, she told an old London friend, only their dresses are not quite so fresh. The men are sad rogues, certainly, but no worse than many. The mistress of the house is a little vulgar, but I don't think she is as vulgar as... And here she named a great leader of fashion. In fact, when you saw Madame de Saint-Amour's rooms lit up at night, and the women at a little distance, you might fancy yourself in good society, and that Madame was a real countess. Many people did so fancy, and Becky was for a while one of the most dashing ladies of her salons. But her old creditors of 1815 found her out, and caused her to leave Paris. The poor little woman was forced to fly rather suddenly and went to Brussels. How well she remembered the place. She grinned as she looked up at the little home she had occupied and thought of the Bearacres family bawling for horses as their carriage stood before the hotel. She visited Waterloo and Laken, where George Osborne's monument much struck her. She made a little sketch of it. That poor Cupid she said. How dreadfully he was in love with me, and what a fool he was. <laughs> oh, I wonder whether little Emmy is alive. It was a good little creature, and that fat brother of hers. I have his funny picture still. They were kind, simple people. At Brussels, Becky was recommended by Madame de Saint-Amour to her friend, Madame la Comtesse de Borodino, widow of Napoleon's general, the famous Count de Borodino, who, after the war, was left with nothing but a hotel and écarté tables. Second-rate dandies and roués, widow ladies with a lawsuit, and very simple English folks put down their money at Madame de Borodino's tables. The gallant young fellows treated the company to champagne, rode out with the women, or hired horses on country excursions. They clubbed together to take boxes at the play or the opera, betted over the fair shoulders of the ladies at the tables, and wrote home to their parents in Devonshire about their happy introduction to foreign society. Here, as at Paris, Becky was a boarding-house queen. She never refused the champagne, or the bouquets, or the drives into the country, or the private boxes. But what she preferred was the écarté at night, and she played audaciously, audacious, and she played audaciously. First she played only for a little, then for five franc pieces, then for Napoleons, then for notes, then she would not be able to pay for her month's board, and borrowed from the young gentleman. Then she got cash again, and bullied Madame de Borodino, whom she had wheedled before. Then she was playing for ten sous at a time, and in a dire state of poverty. Then her quarter's allowance would come in, 
and she would pay Madame de Borodino's bill and once more take the cards against the Chevalier de Ruff. When Becky left Brussels, she owed three months' pension to Madame de Borodino. And this, and the gambling, and the drinking, and the begging of money from the Reverend Mr. Muff, and the flirting with young Milor Noodle, whom she used to take into her private room, and from whom she won large sums at Ecarté, of these and a hundred other knaveries, the Countess de Borodino informed every English person who stayed at her house. So our little wanderer went about setting up her tent in various cities of Europe, as restless as Ulysses. She soon became a perfect bohemian, herding with people whom it would make your hair stand on end to meet. Every town of note in Europe has its little colony of raffish young Englishmen, often a very good family, only disowned by them, frequenters of billiard rooms and gaming tables. They drink and swagger, they fight and brawl, they run away without paying, they get the money and drive off to Baden. They lurk about the tables with empty pockets until they can swindle a Jewish banker with a sham bill of exchange. Their life must be one of great excitement, alternating between splendor and misery. Becky took to this life and went about from town to town among these bohemians. She was known at every play table in Germany. It is said she was ordered out of Munich, but of this part of her story, the less, perhaps, that is said, the better. When Mrs. Crawley was particularly down on her luck, she gave concerts and lessons in music here and there. There was a Madame de Rodon who had a matinee musicale at Wilbad, and at Strasbourg in 1830, a certain Madame Rebec made her appearance in the opera of the Dame Blanche, causing a furious row in the theatre there. She was hissed off the stage by the audience, partly from her own incompetency, but chiefly from the ill-advised sympathy of some officers who were present. She was, in fact, no better than a vagabond. When she got money, she gambled. When she had gambled it away, she had trouble to live. Who knows how she succeeded? It is said that she was once seen at St. Petersburg, but was dismissed from there by the police, so there cannot be any truth in the report that she was a Russian spy at Vienna afterwards. At Rome once, when Mrs. de Rawdon's half-year salary had just been paid into the bankers, and as everybody who had a balance of above five hundred scudi was invited to the bankers' balls, Becky had the honor of a card, and appeared at one of the Prince and Princess Polonia's splendid evening entertainments. The princess was descended from the second king of Rome, while the prince's grandfather, Alessandro Polonia, sold tobacco and pocket handkerchiefs and lent money in a small way. All the great company in Rome thronged to his saloons. Princes, dukes, ambassadors, artists, fiddlers. His halls blazed with light and magnificence, resplendent with gilt frames and dubious antiques. So Becky who was lodged at an inn in a very modest way, dressed with unusual care, and went to this fine ball, leaning on the arm of Major Loder, with whom she happened to be travelling at the time, the same man who was caned by Sir John Buckskin for carrying four kings in his hat while playing at Ecarté. 
This pair went into the rooms together, and Becky saw a number of old faces which he remembered from happier days. Major Loder knew a great number of keen-looking whiskered men with dirty striped ribbons in their buttonholes, but his own countrymen avoided him. Well, the pair drank a great quantity of champagne at the buffet, and then pushed on until they reached the Duchess's pink velvet saloon at the end of the suite of apartments where the princely family were entertaining their most distinguished guests at supper. And there, at Polony's table, sat Lord Steyne. The scar cut by the diamond on his white forehead made a burning red mark. His whiskers were dyed a purple hue, which made his pale face look still paler. He was a greater prince than any there, and near him was seated the beautiful Countess of Belladonna, whose husband, so well known for his brilliant collections of insects, had been long absent on a mission to the Emperor of Morocco. When Becky saw that familiar and illustrious face, how vulgar did Major Loder appear. She tried to look and feel as if she were in Mayfair once more. That woman looks stupid and ill-humoured, she thought. I am sure she can't amuse him. He must be bored by her. He never was by me. A hundred touching hopes, fears, and memories palpitated in her little heart as she gazed with her brightest eyes at the great nobleman. He looked easy, lofty, and stately. Ah, oh, what a pleasant companion he was! What a brilliant wit! What a rich fund of talk! What a grand manner! And she had exchanged this for Major Loder reeking of cigars and brandy. I wonder whether he will know me, she thought. Lord Steyne was talking and laughing when he looked up and saw Becky. She was all in a flutter as their eyes met, and she put on the best smile she could muster and dropped him a little timid curtsy. He stared aghast at her for a minute, as Macbeth might on beholding Banquo's ghost, and was looking at her with open mouth, when that horrid Major Loder pulled her away. "'Come into the supper-room,' he said. "'Seeing these knobs grubbing away has made me peckish. Let's go and try the old governor's champagne.' Becky thought the Major had had a great deal too much already. The next day, she went to walk on the Pincian Hill, the Hyde Park of Roman idlers, hoping to have another sight of Lord Steyne. But it was Mr. Fish, his lordship's confidential man, who came up to her, nodding rather familiarly. "'I followed Madame from her hotel,' he said. "'I have some advice to give, Madame.' "'From the Marquis of Steyne?' Becky asked with as much dignity as she could muster, agitated by hope and expectation. No, said the valet, it is from me. Rome is very unwholesome. Not at this season, monsieur, not till after Easter. I tell madame it is unwholesome now. There is always malaria for some people. That cursed marsh wind kills many. Look, madame Crawley, I have an interest in you. Be warned. Go away from Rome, I tell you, or you will be ill and die. Becky laughed in rage. What? Assassinate poor little me, she said. 
How romantic! Bah, I will stay, if only to plague my lord. I have people to defend me. It was Monsieur Fischer's turn to laugh. Defend you, he said. Who? Any one of those gambling men would take your life for a hundred louis. We know things about Major Loder, and he is no more a major than I am a marquis, which would send him to the galleys, or worse. We know everything and have friends everywhere. Madame has offended somebody who never forgives, whose rage redoubled when he saw you. He was like a madman last night when he came home. You did wrong to show yourself to him, and if you stay here, you will repent it. Mark my words. Go. Here is my lord's carriage. Seizing Becky's arm, he rushed her down an alley as Lord Stain's barouche came whirling along the avenue, drawn by priceless horses, and bearing Madame de Belladonna lolling on the cushions, dark, sulky, and blooming, with old Stain stretched at her side with a livid face. His ghastly eyes seemed tired of looking out on a world of which almost all the pleasure and beauty had palled. Monseigneur has never recovered from the shock of that night, Monsieur Fiche whispered to Mrs. Crawley as the carriage flashed by, and she peeped out from behind the shrubs. That is a consolation at any rate, Becky thought. Whether my lord really had murderous intentions towards Mrs. Becky, or whether Monsieur Fiche simply had orders to frighten her out of the city, has never been ascertained, but the threat had its effect. She sought no more to meet her old patron. Everybody knows the melancholy end of that nobleman at Naples in 1830, when the most honourable Marquis of Steyn, Earl of Gaunt, died after a series of fits brought on, as the paper said, by the shock caused by the Second French Revolution. The newspapers described his virtues, his talents, and his good actions. His body was buried at Naples— and his heart, that heart which always beat with every generous and noble emotion, was brought back to Gaunt Castle in a silver urn. His will was disputed, and an attempt was made to force from Madame de Belladonna the celebrated diamond ring which his lordship always wore, and which it was said she removed after his death. But, his confidential friend, Monsieur Fiche, proved that the ring had been presented to Madame de Belladonna two days before the Marquis died, as had the banknotes, jewels, bonds, etc., found in his lordship's desk and claimed by his heirs from the injured woman. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. 
Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.